So we were, we were happy to begin our interviews with you today because it always gives us a chance to begin to connect with you and find out what's happening in your practice and your experience. And I know for myself and the others, we're very, very touched by people's experiences and the depth of your practice and what you're connecting with in yourselves. And it really, really moves us, which is probably the reason that we come and teach this with you, because we are so touched by what actually happens here on the retreat. So really want to thank you. I mean, we, I only met with a few of you, but, I, but I, my sense is that there is a depth that's really happening here now, which, which then just keeps opening and opening as the days go on. And it's not so easy to be here. This is certainly what was coming up for people. It's a challenge, as Sally was talking about. You know, this practice is challenging because we're, we're, we're meeting ourselves. The, the loving-kindness practice has a particular kind of integrity to it that actually, I often think of it that it acts like a mirror, it's that the, we create a, a meta field here, a field of loving kindness that, that has a reflective aspect to it, which reflects ourselves back to ourselves. It's like we see ourselves in a way that maybe we don't often have a chance to because we're putting ourselves in this field of, of love and kindness. And so, of course, we're going to see the ways that we're not. It's, it's going to show up the places that we are still holding or places that we're still attached or where our, our, our business isn't finished yet. And that's actually what's supposed to happen, even though it's hard. And like one woman said today, um, she didn't really know what she was signing up for. But she, you know, she's here and she's in it now and, and she's glad for it. And yet I think that might be the case with some people, that you, you, don't, you didn't know really what you were walking into if you haven't done this uh, kind of intensive metta before. So there is a way that it, does cha- it challenges us to, to have to, to look at our minds and our hearts and our personalities and what's been developed here in ways that, you know, is, is sometimes hard to see. <laughs> For myself, in the beginning years of my metta practice, I really struggled with it. In those early years, we had mostly the 45-minute period of loving-kindness within a retreat of insight practice, a vipassana practice. And every time that we had the metta, I, I really didn't like it. And it was so funny because one of my friends who I've been practicing with for a long time, who lives near me, when she said, even last week, she said, um, I told, when I told her that I was going to be teaching this metta retreat, she looked at me, she said, metta? You used to run out of the metta. You know, every, I'm surprised that you're, you know, that you're still teaching it. You didn't like it at all. And it was funny that she actually remembered that. It would kind of surprise me that she, that she remembered that, because I did. I often just ran out because it was too hard to see myself. It was too hard to sit with myself during those, trying to, repeating the phrases and trying to connect with a place of love because I was very, very hard on myself. 
And so the ways that I was hard on myself would just show up even more. And, you know, I didn't want to see that. So I would just not do it often, you know, just leave. But those were the early years. And, and yet, you know, as I hear some people saying as well, that, you know, even though there's a certain amount of resistance or um, uh, difficulty with metta in the beginning, even people who have done a couple of retreats, there's a way that the metta just infiltrates into our lives in, in different kinds of ways. And for myself, as difficult as it was to sit there for those 45-minute meditations, I would then go home and I would just be sending metta to myself and putting my hand on my heart and wishing for my own happiness and peacefulness and well-being. And, you know, just would do that through the day and send it to other people. (laughs) And so it doesn't necessarily mean so much about what actually happens when you're sitting on the cushion because something else is happening. There's a whole nother dimension of, of uh, connection and wisdom and uh, 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 development that's going on. I think Sally said today that this is like a three-ring circus um, because there are just so many, so many levels that are, we're being impacted with, with this. I was very touched by someone who said today, that um, even though it was different, it was difficult for her, she was saying it, she just wanted to hear a different story. And the metaphrases were like a, a wonderful bedtime story that was actually telling her that she was deserving of this love. She was deserving. And, and it was a message that she hadn't received before when she was growing up. You know, And many of us can relate to that we didn't receive that message. And so the, the feeling may be that we're not so deserving of this love. And, and, and we can feel that sometimes when we're doing the phrases. They, they just sort of ping off like, you know, there may be some kind of a metallic sort of feeling. And then these phrases go in and they ping and ping and they're not, not really going in because of that belief that we might have about our own worthiness, worth the, our value of, of receiving this kind of love, this kind of attention, this kind of care. And so I just love that sense of, this, uh, of a new, of a different kind of story. You know, and, and almost like the phrases are whispering in our ear, that this is really possible for us, that we can be happy, we can be healthy, we can be safe, we can be at ease. I mean, that's a different story, you know, than one that we often carry for ourselves and then extending that to others and wishing that for them as well. It's not the usual story that we hear in our collective world this, this kind of generating of this uh, well-wishing and this goodness. This wonderful quote from Jesus uh, from Matthew 7.13 also points to how this is not a very easy path for us. Jesus says this, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to suffering. And those who go through it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to the happiness of true life. 
and those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. And, and here we are, you know, really going through the narrow gate, you know, to this, because we know this is the path to true happiness, not only for ourselves, but for other beings. And it's so interesting, I was noticing in the groups today that, you know, when I was listening to people speaking in their stories, I, I was feeling some emotion today. I, and I'm actually feeling a little now as I, as I uh, share this with you and, and speak about the, the, the depth of this practice and this path that we're doing together. I can just feel the sort of the, the little bit of moisture on the back of my eyes because I'm, I'm very, very touched by this work that we're doing here together. All of us, all of us are doing it together even though it's not so easy to see the things that we're seeing in ourselves. We're really attempting to discover a simple love, you know, just a simple love, an uncomplicated love. The most simple, simple love that is possible in this universe. And maybe the word love is not a word that necessarily works for you, I think James mentioned this too in the opening that sometimes that, that isn't the right word for us. It might be a ki- kindness or it might be friendliness, you know, even more simple than love because even the word love in itself could already have a, a, an association of complication. But then when we come into a simple kindness or, or a friendliness, Sometimes the word metta is translated as a friendliness with all things, a deep friendliness with all things, which is, again, a little bit of a different kind of flavor than than loving, a loving which has maybe in its association more, more complexity. So this simplicity of one moment, and, and it's really all that we are looking for is this one moment where we're not in conflict with what's happening in our experience, where we're not grasping onto something, we're not pushing away what's happening, but there's that opening to what is, this opening to what is, which is what we practice in our mindfulness practice. And yet mindfulness itself may not have this quality of, kind, of kindness. So we often talk about a mindfulness with kindness, which is the metta, bringing the metta and the mindfulness together. So whenever I think of mindfulness, a true mindfulness practice, I don't think you can separate it from the, the, the metta attitude, the quality that we bring with that attention uh, to our experience, that uh, attending to what's happening for us. And so it's an, an aspect that we cultivate in our practice is this way of, of attending with this friendliness or this kindness to what's here, whatever is here, whatever the range of our experience, even if we don't like it or it's difficult or it's painful or we're caught in the aversion or the ill will or the judgment or the attachment, even in seeing that, can we bring that metta, the attitude of metta, the kindness 
okay, it's just like that now, it's like that now, or my experience is like this now. And already we're, we've just stepped into the, the meta field. We've stepped into the goodness of our being just by that quality of allowing, that quality of accepting what is. And so sometimes our practice is just this simp, this like one increment, one increment of letting go or one increment of, of stepping out of our ill will or our attachment to how we want things to be. You know, we were, I was speaking with James this morning. We were having a conversation at breakfast about this. And I, remem- I remembered that for myself, and I think this is one reason that I struggle so much with, with the metta practice, is that because I had such high expectations of myself back then, then I thought that it just wasn't an incremental step back. I thought that I had to show up as the Buddha, or it was not good enough right, or Kuan Yin, or, you know, whoever my deity was of the, of the flavor of the week, you know, that I, it wasn't enough just to have a moment of, oh yeah, I'm not resisting the resistance right now, or I'm not judging the judging right now, or whatever it was, it had to be non-existent forever, you know, it, it couldn't come up again, <laughs> ever, you know, or absolutely something was wrong with me. And, and so I could see, you know, I see now that shift in my own understanding and the importance of that, that it just that one little, ah, just a little tipping of the letting go of that attachment to having my experience be a certain way. Just having my shoulders relax or my belly relax is enough. You know, it's not like I have to be the Buddha or whoever, you know. It's just, oh, my shoulders are relaxed. And, you know, two minutes ago, they were actually really tight and scrunched or, you know, oh, my heart feels softer. That's enough. You know, my belly opened. That's enough. I feel more connected and present now. I'm actually feeling, I'm actually connecting with the phrases a little bit right now. That's enough. And I know so many of us often get into, it's not good enough, you know, the mantra, one of our mantras. It's not good enough, not good enough, you know, depending on different personality types as well. Certain personality types have that more than others. But that bar, you know, you get to one bar and then there's another bar. You get to another bar, you get to another bar. You know, you never, you never get there. You never get there. So letting that just, ah, ah, my shoulders, my belly, my breath. It's enough. It's already a huge, huge step in the uh, awakening of consciousness. When I was first starting this metta practice, I remember, always remember uh, Joseph Goldstein was teaching me at the time. And I always remember, because people would wonder, you know, about this, you know, needing to have a big feeling, you know, I don't feel the metta, I don't feel, my heart's not open, I'm not having a lot of emotion, you know. And he would say, it's simpler than that. (laughs) It's simpler than that. All you need to do is to simply have the intention to wish yourself or another person well. 
just that, you know, just, just that even the mind already just tipping a little bit towards the goodwill, towards that, that sense of offering goodness, is enough, you know? And so the fact that you're here, that you've come to this retreat, already is an expression of your intention of goodwill, you know, which is a huge thing already, besides the fact that you're still here, you know, that you're, you know, continuing to stay. And all the intentions, all the seeds of intention that you just continue to plant all through the day is very powerful, that, that tipping over to the, to the goodness, to what's called the basic goodness or the innate goodness of our being. We're not feeding, we're not reinforcing the old negative and and difficult patterns of mind that we're often engaged in as we go through our day and we're not paying attention or not so aware of ourselves. But here we're really uh, engaged in this, uh, this wakefulness, being very awake in our experience to see what's actually happening, what's actually going on. And using the metaphrases as our support for the object to return back to, to help us uh, gain some stability with our presence, with this uh, uh, a present moment-to-moment-to-moment experience. So we're not really looking for anything big here. You know, we're not looking for a big emotional kind of release or this kind of the melting of the heart and, you know, this kind of deep connection with things, you know. I mean, that's, it, if it happens, it's wonderful and it feels wonderful. And, and it's, ama- it's a, it's a ter- terrific feeling of feeling connected and not separate or isolated uh, as we often might feel. However, what's important is that, that we have the intention to keep going. We have the intention to keep going, to wishing ourselves well and to wish other people well. And that will take us a very, very long, long way. We're, the reason this love is so simple or this kindness is so simple is because we're touching that, that quality of kindness or love or friendliness that's already woven within our being. We're... we're, we're we're recognizing or we're gaining access to what's already there. It's not like we're building ourselves up and kind of patching ourselves up and making ourselves into something that we're, we're not already. You know, it's really more that we're, 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 taking, we're taking something away, the old, pat, old conditioned patterns that obscure or distort our, our clarity of, what, of who we actually are, what's actually here. So we're touching into that which we are and, and coming into connection with that more fully. Rumi, Rumi, the wonderful poet Rumi, talks about removing veils. I, I love this um, very short poem of his. Um, he says, This is love. To fly toward a secret sky, to cause a hundred veils to fall in each moment. First, to let go of life, finally to take a step without feet. Take a step without feet. 
So we're not in our usual familiar location. That's what he means, let go of life. The life, this attachment, this holding, this grasping onto the way we always imagine things need to be. And take that step, kind of without feet, into the unknown, into the mystery. Just to, to fly toward a secret sky to cause a hundred veils to fall in each moment. And in a way, that's what's happening. I love that image because the veils that obscure this knowing of who we are are, are emotional veils or mental veils of our, of our conditioning, of our past. All those past impressions that co- constellate the sense of who I take myself to be, who I believe that I am. And sometimes it's very hard to get a sense of anything outside of that view or that, that sense of me, this is who I am, and, and not really having a sense that maybe, maybe there's something more. Maybe I'm bigger. Maybe I'm larger. Maybe, maybe there is something much more than this small, limited view that I have of myself. These veils are like looking through colored glasses, you know, then everything has a little bit of a distortion. And these kind of glasses, that these emotional and mental veils, are actually glasses that give us a sense of myself, so that everything I look at is about me, you know. So if I'm looking at another person, you know, it's like, okay, what am I going to get out of this relationship? Or what are they going to give me? Are they giving me the things that I want? You know, again, it's about me. And we kind of lose the sense of that simple, just that simple well-wishing for myself and the other person that we're here together, we're involved in something together. But, but this sense of self, this selfing that we talk a lot about in Buddhism can become so solid, so rigid, rigid rigidified, <laughs> and, and that we have a sense of, I am separate than you. I am isolated. I am a separate entity over here and you're over there. And then all of the the dukkha, all of the suffering arises from that location because we miss the sense of our interconnection. We miss the sense that actually we are not so separate. Actually, we are very connected in this field of loving-kindness as one expression of the connection. So looking at this way, the me, the sense of me comes into play is actually a very important part of even this uh, metta practice that we're doing because the the me-ness and what's in it for me and what am I going to get out of this and, you know, uh, I'll only love you if you know, all the conditions that we start to put on our relationships or the contracts that we need to have, you know, in order for this to work. You know, all that is what actually distorts that simple love, just the simple kindness. The, the, the meanness becomes actually more prominent. The me and you, self and other. And that sense of separateness can then predominate 
the relationship and we, we lose that, that sense of connection. What happens is the mind gets fixated on what, it, what I want. You know, so the, the mind, me, me, I am the mind, I get fixated on what I want from this relationship, from this person, from this thing, whatever it is. It could even be our meditation practice. It could be your metta practice. What I am going to get out of this. Maybe I wonder if any of you have already had, had that thought. I don't know if I'm getting my money's worth. You know, I don't know if I'm getting what I want out of this. This isn't really what I came here for. You know, already the, the sense of what I want, what I expect starts to come up. And then there's a way that, that we're not able to see things so clearly. And we can certainly perhaps see how we do this with ourselves. It doesn't even have to be the other because we can become the other. You know, I'm not living up to my expectations. I'm not living up to the contract that I have. I'm supposed to be like this. You know, I'm supposed to show up like this. I, you know, all the, all the expectations and demands that we can put on ourselves. You know, already there's a split. Not only is there the self here and the other there, but I become split in all these different ways as well. This is where the judgments come up. You know, then I start judging myself because I'm not good enough, I'm not doing well enough, I, you know, I'm just weak or I'm not strong or I'm having all these memories about all the things I did wrong and why did I do all those things wrong and, you know, I'm never going to get it right, I fail at everything. It, you know, it goes on and on and on. We're treating ourselves like an object that has to live up to certain agendas and expectations and demands. And if we're doing that internally, we're also doing that externally. We're doing that to others as well. We're not really going to find that simple love of well-wishing in that. It's going to be covered over, distorted, confused, Oh, just like, a, like a, a glass window that has a lot of smudge or dust on it, we're not going to be able to see through, even though it's glass. It had, the nature is still glass, but it's all kind of cr- uh, clouded. And the same thing happens for us. The, the love doesn't have a chance to express itself in its purity, in its innate goodness. I see how a lot of people do this with their bodies. It's like the body becomes an object that isn't uh, isn't showing up the way that I want it to. The body gets sick, or the the different things happen in the body, and and people get angry at their bodies. And people, as as we start to age, aging is a very difficult thing, and a lot of people start hating their bodies a lot of ill will, a lot of aversion to different parts of the body, the face or you know, arms or legs or w- bellies or whatever it is. A lot of ill will, a lot of anger comes up. Again, because there's that, almost that separation, like I, 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 me and my body, right? It's me and my body. Like somehow my body's different than me and somehow my body's supposed to you know, do what I want it to do. Again, me. It's all about me and what I want and what I expect and what I demand. 
You know, so you can see how, I mean, this can just go across the board. We can do this, we can do this with anything, with everything. Emerson, Emerson said, what is life but the angle of vision? What is life but the angle of vision? Just the way we're looking at things. It's not like anything really changes. It's just the way we're looking at things. Somehow we're looking at things as if they're supposed to give us something. People are supposed to give us something. Things are supposed to give us something. And this is what, where we come into what's called the near enemy of metta. The near enemy of metta. The near enemy means, and each of the Brahma-Vaharas has this, and we'll be speaking about this through the week. But the near enemy of loving-kindness, of metta, is attached love or possessive love. Not, not, again, not, again, not that simple expression of well-wishing, of goodness, but I'm attached to this. And attachment means, when we talk about attachment, what that means is that I have some expectation of a result or an outcome. Something's supposed to happen in this situation. I mean, whatever it is, as I said, it could be our meditations, it could be a relationship, whatever it is. But I have some grasping or expectation, holding on to some idea of an outcome, of a result. This is where our, our agendas come up, or our, this, these contracts, or these expectations, or judgments, or whatever it is, because of this idea that I have that I'm holding on to that is very difficult for me to let go of. And when we're holding on to this result, then we lose a sense of the process, of the unfolding, of the journey, this journey that we're on that is actually out of our control. We think, from the point of view of our ego self, that we can actually manipulate and control the conditions in our life. We can control people, we can control situations, but we, we, are, we aren't seeing clearly from this point of view of attachment, of ego mind. We're not, we're not seeing reality. We're, we're, we're disconnected from Dhamma, from the way things are, because things are out of our control. And when we try to hold on to any condition, any condition, we suffer. Dukkha, dukkha, suffering. So, we, so this is very important as we're exploring the loving kindness because the, we can, near enemy means it looks like metta, but it's not really metta because there's attachment in it, the self the selfing, the self wants something. So we've, we've lost the simplicity of the intentionality of may you be happy, may you be well, may you be you know, peaceful. That just that light, you can even feel in the phrases the, when, we're, when we're connected in that way, so light, so light. It just float, it'll float like bubbles, meta bubbles. You know, it's just so light. <laughs> there's, no, there's no holding that it has to be that way in it. And so, and so we, we can start to feel and sense that where, where, we're, where, we, where we're grasping, we're wanting, 
things to be a certain way. I mean, you can feel this and sense that even with your metta practice, when you want the phrases to stay or you want yourself to be connected to metta, you want the feeling or whatever it is that you might be wanting, when it, when it has that kind of that gripping feeling, the contracted feeling, you can actually feel the muscles actually get tight. There's attachment there. It's not like when the, the shoulders start to relax and the breath opens up and the belly softens. Ah, things get lighter. Things get lighter again. So the near enemy, the near enemy, there's a lot to explore around this and and we'll be exploring more and more around this because it's so key, this area of attachment. Just to, um, I came across this, this, this article about the creator of, of Downton Abbey and, and uh, some of you might be watching this series. It's very, very popular on TV, Downton Abbey, about this um, uh, in- English uh, uh, co- country estate and the family and the servants that live, live in, the, uh, on the, in, the, in, the ma- in the mansion. And uh, it's a very, very popular, and it's in its uh, third season of, uh, of series. And the, and the man, Julian Fellows, who developed it, who's the creator, uh, there was an interview with him. I mean, a wonderful, very creative uh, 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 sc- uh, screenwriter, uh, 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 pr- very creative person. And he said um, here, his anxiety went from, will I ever make it to, might I lose everything? He said, I think I'm more fearful of the future now, he said, sipping his tea. I always feel that there's some giant hand about to lean in and snatch it all away from me, saying, that wasn't meant for you. Emma, his wife, has this completely different quality of living in the present. It's just been very helpful for me to live with someone who doesn't think, oh my God, what if it all stops tomorrow? Of course, it's absurd to live your life dreading some unspecified disaster. You know? And I just, I think he just, you know, hit the nail on the head because I know so many of us actually live that way. You know, especially when things start getting good and you actually start to feel that lightness and you start to feel the letting go and the connection and the heart opens. It's like, but it's all going to be taken away. You know, why do I even bother? And so it's so easy for that fear to come up again. But what we know is that the more that we hold on, the tighter that we hold on, the more that we suffer. And the more that we hold on, the stronger the sense of self gets, the stronger of me gets, and the stronger those demands get and the expectations get. And that's where the love even gets more uh, contracted and distorted. And in the teachings, what it points to is then it goes to the opposite, which is called the far enemy of loving kindness. So the more holding, the more grasping, the more selfing, it gets very, very contracted, almost like a piece of coal. You know, it just gets so dense and black that it turns to hate and anger and ill will, 
And all of the behaviors that start to arise out of that kind of contracted heart, which is called the far enemy, which is the opposite. So, and yet, so what's, what's so interesting in this analogy, and, and the more I reflect on these enemies, it's not like the love is gone. It's just that the love has become compressed. It's not available the hate is still directed towards that object, the one that we want something from, the one that we're hoping something might change, that we could get what we want. Whatever it is, whatever it is, a person, whether it's a, a country, whether it's a religion, whether it's politics, whether it's uh, racial issues, um, issues around sexuality, whatever it is, when the heart gets so, so contracted, it turns to hate, to ill will, to anger. And the degree of the self in there, the degree of the contraction, will determine the degree of the intensity of the opposite emotion from love, the intensity of that hate. Sometimes it may just be, a, you know, ill will, which is a judgment, you know, I don't like this, I, I don't like when you do, you do that, you know, I don't like when I do this, you know, and it, it, we don't feel so much of the contraction of the love, we can still sometimes feel the lightness in it, we're not taking it so seriously, but sometimes we're, we're totally that, we're totally identified as that one who is angry, who is hateful, who is just doesn't like the way things are, and we're totally caught in it. That's what we mean by self. You know, in in Buddhist language, the self, when the self is caught in that grasping, the grasping of its attachments, the hate and the ill will is still attachment, but we talk about the holding onto what we want and the pushing, the rejecting of what we don't want. Wanting and not wanting. Wanting and not wanting. That's where the ego mind gets caught, in the wanting and the not wanting. Wanting and not wanting. And we lose our sense of ground. We lose our sense of connection to our basic goodness, our innate benevolent heart, our friendly heart. The heart and mind, in Buddhism it's citta, the heart-mind where we can see clearly the way things are. We don't lose that view. We don't lose sight of the connection, the connectivity, the, the universality, the, 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 the open, boundless nature w- which holds everything. It's that contracted view where things get so confused and so distorted when I was thinking about this t- today and thinking about the coal, the coal, you know, how the, the, when the, the, the heart gets so condensed, it can be like this black coal. The image just popped up in my mind of when I was a kid. And whenever I was bad, which was a lot of the time, you know, at Christmas when the, when the stockings went up, you know, the coal went into the stocking. And whenever, you know, I don't know, did other people get coal in their stocking? You know, it's like... You know, as a, you know, an example, you were a bad kid, you know, so, I, you know, in my stocking there's a piece of coal, you know, which in a, it's terrible, isn't it? 
But <laughs> I haven't thought of that. I haven't thought of that for, I can't even remember, what, 25 years? I don't, I don't know. So it just popped up, you know, remembering that, which is also an example of maybe not a very loving <laughs> expression from my parents. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> And it, it wasn't just once. <laughs> you know, so I really did get the message that, you know, I, I needed to, to, to change some things the way I was. But, you know, we just, this, this, we just can turn this on ourselves. And, of course, when we're children, you know, those messages that we get, we can just turn them in on ourselves. And we just think that, you know, we're so bad and so wrong and so undeserving of any kind of love. I mean, especially if we didn't get very much expression of that love, of course we're going to have that kind of feeling about ourselves. And then, you know, things happen and and then they validate how unworthy we are and, you know, how undeserving we are. And it just keeps uh, cycling around. And then we feel the shame about ourselves and then things keep Get being evidence of how bad we are. And it's kind of like a, the Buddha actually calls it a dart, you know, like it's a, a po- almost a poison dart. It's a, it's a, it's wrong view because the truth is that nothing is wrong. I mean, you're not wrong. I'm not wrong. We're not bad. And it's just that, it's that, again, that distortion of the kind of the twisting of, of the way of way we're seeing things or perceiving things. It's not true. It's not true. It's, it's, not, it's wrong. The view is wrong. What we see is that the grasping, the grasping actually suffocates the love. It's another way of saying it. The grasping, on, even the grasping onto a view, believing this view is, it'll suffocate our love. Suffocate the way that we, that we, think about ourselves and we'll lose the connection to, our, to the source of our love. The more that we believe that, the more that we reinforce those kinds of ideas about ourselves. This is from the, one of the Buddha's uh, texts, the Udana, where the Buddha said, whatever an enemy might do to an enemy or a foe to a foe, the ill-directed mind can do to you even worse. The ill-directed mind can do to you even worse. So the Dharma, coming into the Dharma, coming into this beautiful practice is what starts to shift that view, starts to shift the view so that we start to see things more correctly. We start to see things more clearly about ourselves and about others, about the way things are. It's a beautiful quote from... Mark Nepo, this man who's writer, um, poet, um, speaker, beautifully connects with humanity. And he said, For the flower, every stage of its blooming is perfectly open. Every stage of its blooming is perfectly open. It's not like the flower, we have to wait till the flower is open before we can really appreciate how beautiful it is. I mean, it's beautiful. It's, it's in every, every expression of its being, it's beautiful. Even when the petals fall off, 
still beautiful. You know, we usually just reject it and say, you know, it's done. But when we really look at that, it's still beautiful. I remember the first time that I, I really kind of recognized this was some years ago when I was in England at teaching at Gaia House and somebody brought um, a whole kind of bouquet of dandelions that had, were starting to come to seed. So they were just past their beautiful stage and they were just seeding. And, and in my growing up, you know, dandelions were poisoned because, you know, they should be in the, the, the grass. They messed up the grass. So, you know, I, I saw this beautiful bouquet of these dandelions, you know, on this table. And then, you know, these beautiful seeds that were coming out. And it was just like, what a work of art. What a, what a beautiful thing to see that I would have never, ever imagined uh, moving towards, like picking the dandelions and bringing them on the table. It's, it impressed me deeply. And in the, that recognition that at every stage, we are already beautifully open it's not like we need to get somewhere or something needs to happen to begin to appreciate ourselves and our beingness and where we are, the beauty that is right here. And recognizing again and again that nothing is wrong. Nothing is wrong. We are on a journey of awakening. We are on a path. We are on a path where we are growing. We are developing where we are learning. This is, a, this is our journey that we're on together. And the deepest part of our nature is wise, that knows really that there is nothing that is good and bad as polarities that are opposite from each other. There's, this is good because that's bad, or that's bad because this is good. But we can get out of that duality altogether. We don't have to be bad. We don't have to be even good. We just are. It, things are just the way they are. My experience is just the way it is. And bringing a mindful metta to that, that beautiful quality of acceptance and, and allowing to just what's here. Because it's so easy for the mind to get caught in that duality, in that opposition of good and bad, good and bad, good and bad. And then again, we're on that treadmill trying to get somewhere attached to our view and our ideas and our opinions. And so the, the metta really has this possibility, this opportunity to o- awaken our, us out of the duality, completely out of the duality of good and bad, right and wrong, all the places that the ego mind wants to go. This is from Cahil Gabran. And you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life. Sorry, and if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. Your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. In a way, we're inviting ourselves back to ourselves. We're, we're, we're collecting ourselves again, you know, collecting those disparate parts that we have either rejected or split off from or, or re, you know, said those are bad parts or whatever it is. We're collecting this word 
concentration actually is collecting, collecting, gathering, coming into a unified field, a unified whole. This is what we're doing. The concentration helps us in this collecting so that we come back to ourselves and our wholeness and our completeness. I love this um, quote from the Talmud. When Akiba was on his deathbed, he bemoaned to his rabbi that he felt he was a failure. His rabbi moved closer and asked why, and Akiba confessed that he had not lived a life like Moses. The poor man began to cry, admitting that he feared God's judgment. At this, his rabbi leaned into his ear and whispered gently, God will not judge Akiba for not being Moses. God will judge Akiba for not being Akiba. God will judge Akiba for not being Akiba. That is all that's being asked of us. You know, this took me a really, really long time to learn this because I always thought I had to be like the Buddha, be like Kuan Yin before I was worthwhile, you know, I was, I was deserving or, or of value. But I think that's why I love that quote so much because that's all that's being asked of us. It's just to be ourselves, just to be who you are. And our practice is really to see if we can come into that kind of patient acceptance, that, that patient, there's patient, there's a quality of patience in this. Because we'll see again and again and again the ways that we don't match up to our ideals and our expectations of ourselves and how others don't. But again and again and again, coming into that quality of acceptance. And each time we do this, we are turning the mind towards the good. We're turning the mind towards that innate goodness. But there's a little secret here. Because we might think that it's me doing that turning, that I am turning towards the good. And of course we would imagine that. But actually I think it's a little bit different. I think it's the goodness within us that's turning the mind mind towards more goodness. It's the goodness that has already been accumulated, that has already been recognized, that wisdom and that love that already knows what's helpful and, and skillful that just keeps tipping us, turning us towards more goodness more love, more friendliness, more kindness. And it just keeps generating and generating and generating and gets stronger and more powerful and more expansive and more boundless and just keeps going and going and going. This is the power, the power of our own innate love, our own innate goodness, our own innate kindness that is there already. So this is the practice that we're doing and we're, we're, we're developing now, we're developing this power, the power in this practice. And this power has a, a way of generating uh, and expressing in ways that we can't even imagine. Can't even imagine at this point. 
But something in us knows because we're still here. (laughs) We're still here. So I want to end with um, this poem that somebody wrote. I don't even know what year it was, but I kept it uh, at one of the Metta retreats. Uh, Kenneth Simmons, who I don't really even know, but I wrote the name down. So I... It's a really uh, lovely expression of what it is that we're doing here. It's called Meta Practice Spirit Rock, Day 6, 6 a.m. <laughs> Daybreak floats, weightless like, like fog at the window. Eight pools of yellow light like fragrance touch memory, light warming the air. Sound is reduced to one bird, the rustle now and then of fabric, the creak from time to time of wood, invisibly flexing, and the almost sound of a hundred people, each cloaked in our own tent of beautiful cloth, breathing. Each behind closed eyes polishes a family of beloveds with phrases uttered 10,000 times by the mind, by the heart, by the pores of our skin like the sound in the seashell or the constant sound of a distant ocean, the sound of breathing, not anybody's breathing, breath itself, breathing love, not anybody's love, love itself, utterly love, breathing. Let's sit quietly for just a minute. Thank you for your kind, kind attention. And now we have, um, is it a half hour? Yeah, we have a half hour for some walking and we'll come back for the last sit with our chanting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.